You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hello, everybody. This is Lenny Goldberg. Thanks for joining me today. Tonight is Lagba Omer, the 33rd day in the counting of the Omer. We started counting after Passover, and Am Yisrael is heading towards the gravesite of Shimon Bar Yochai, the great mystical Tana, the great rabbi, and Lagba Omer, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, he passed away. And there's a halula there at his burial site in Meron. And Lagba Omer is also celebrated because it marks a break in the death of the students of Rabbi Akiva. And you can ask a question, maybe two questions. One, why Rashbi? Why Shimon Bar Yochai? What is so special about him that all of Am Israel, religious and secular, Haredi and modern docs, everyone floods his gravesite, everyone flows to Meron to celebrate Rav Shimon Bar Yochai. I mean, Am Israel has had a lot of great rabbis in its history. Moses, for instance. Well, we don't know where Moses is buried, so maybe that's why we don't, because think about how many people would go to his gravesite if we knew. But still, there's a lot of great rabbis out there. You don't see all of Am Yisrael going to the Rambam's kever or to the gravesite of another great Tana. What's Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai got that they don't? That's one mystery we want to solve. And the other thing we want to ask is, we said that Lagba Omer, besides being the yard site of Rav Shimon Bar Yochai, it also marks the break in the death of Rabbi Akiva's students. So is there a connection between these two reasons that we celebrate Lagba Omer? Or is it just a coincidence that Rashbi's yard site falls on the day that Rabbi Akiva's students stopped dying? So to answer the first question, why Rav Shimon Bar Yochai? Why, why is he so popular? Well, in order to know him, you have to know his Rebbe. And Rav Shimon Bar Yochai's rabbi was Rabbi Akiva. Now, Rabbi Akiva was from another world. He was the greatest godol in Torah. So much so that when Moshe Rabbeinu received the Torah, if you look at a Torah scroll, you have these little crowns over the letters. And when Moses received the Torah from God, he said, what are these little crowns about? And Hashem said to Moses, there's going to be a great rabbi and he's going to interpret stuff off those little crowns. And Moses said, could I see this rabbi? And Hashem put Moses in a time machine. He went fast forward into Rabbi Akiva's generation and he sat in Rabbi Akiva's class and it says in the Gemara, he did not understand anything. He was actually worried that they were learning something else because he didn't understand it. And he only calmed down when Rabbi Akiva said, this is the Torah we see from Moses. And so Rabbi Akiva was the great Godel in the written law and also in the oral law. Because after losing his 24,000 students, he dusted himself off and he started a new yeshiva and his five students, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi Elazar and Rabbi Yossi, they are the backbone of the oral law, of the Talmud. Those are the Tanaim. So we see that Rabbi Akiva is the master of both the written law and the oral law. But it's not just learning Torah and studying Torah and being great in Torah. He was also a nationalist, a fierce, fierce nationalist who never stopped fighting for Jewish independence and sovereignty in the land of Israel. Not for nothing did the Romans jail him and torture him and skin him alive. They hated him because he was constantly defying the Roman decrees. And according to the Rambam, he was the Nosei Kelav, the arms bearer of Shimon Bar Kokhva in Bar Kokhva's revolution. That is 60 years after the destruction of the second temple. There was another rebellion and Rabbi Akiva as the Gadol Ador, 
as the great rabbi of the generation, he spearheaded the Rakhachma rebellion. He gave it the Hechsher. He was the spiritual leader of it. And the 24,000 students who died during the time from Pesach to Atzeret, as the Talmud says, they died in the Barkochva rebellion. They fell in the wars. How do we know? That's what Rav Shirer Gaon says. He says that the Talmudim of Rabbi Akiva, they died in Gzerot Shmad, in the decrees against Torah by the Romans. Shmad is always the code word for the decrees against Judaism. And Rav Shirer Gaon isn't anybody. The Gaonim, they lived after the Amoraim. They were the rabbis after the rabbis of the Talmud. So their Masoret, their tradition is the strongest there is. And of course it makes sense because if Rabbi Akiva was the arms bearer of Shimon Bar Kokhva, then of course his students went out to war. They didn't sit in the Beit Midrash during the wars of Bar Kokhva. They joined him in the fight for independence against the Roman occupation. They were trying to bring the Mashiach. It was after the Chorban Bayacheni, after the Second Temple period. They weren't about to wait 2,000 years to bring back a Jewish independent state. They're trying to bring it now. And it was just 60 years after the destruction of the Second Temple. Because unlike during the First Temple period, when there was a specific prophecy that it would be 70 years until the Jews returned for the Second Temple, after the Second Temple, there was no prophecy. There was no set time. There was no set time for when the Jews would return. It could come at any time. That's what it says in the Talmud. One of the rabbis came to Eliyahu Navi and he asked him, when's the redemption coming? And he said, Hayom im kolo tishmau. Today, it'll come today if you hearken to my voice. So it could have come at any time. So the Jews in the Bar Kokhba rebellion, they're trying to bring the redemption now, 60 years after the destruction of the second temple. And it was Rabbi Akiva who had the incredible misru nefesh, the self-sacrifice for his nation and the land of Israel. It says in the Talmud that during Kriyat Shema, when we say Shema Yisrael, it says you have to love Hashem with all your soul, even if God takes your soul. And then they bring this story. One time the evil empire of Rome decreed that Israel may not engage in the study of Torah. So there was a rabbi, Rav Papa, and he sees Rabbi Akiva holding Torah rallies in public and engaging in Torah study despite the Roman decrees. And Papa said to Rabbi Akiva, Aren't you afraid of the Roman Empire? Rabbi Akiva answered him, let me give you a parable. A fox was walking along a riverbank when he sees these fish gathering from place to place. And the fox says to them, why are you fleeing? And they said to him, we're fleeing from the nets that people cast upon us. So the fox said to the fish, why don't you come up on dry land and we'll hang out together? And the fish said back to the fox, you're supposed to be the cleverest of all the animals. You're not clever. You're a fool. If we're afraid in the water, our natural habitat, which gives us life, then in a habitat that causes our death, that is going onto the land, all the more so we should be afraid. And so too, when we sit and study Torah, that is our life. That's our habitat. And so all the more so, if we are idle from Torah study, then obviously we're even in more danger. So that's the mushal, the parable, Rabbi Akiva gives to Rabbi Papa. And then it continues in the Gomorrah. A few days passed and they seized Rabbi Akiva and they incarcerated him in prison. And then they seized Rav Papa and they incarcerated him also. And Rabbi Akiva said to Rav Papa, Rav Papa, who brought you here? And Rav Papa said, Ashrecha Rabbi Akiva, praiseworthy are you Rabbi Akiva, for you were arrested on Torah study. Woe unto Papa who was seized for nothing. So even though Rav Papa was obeying the Roman decrees, they arrested him too. 
And then the Gomorrah continues in the very next line, how they took Rabbi Akiva to be executed and they raked his flesh with iron combs. And while they were doing it, he accepted upon himself the yoke of heaven. And that's what it means, you love Hashem with all your soul. So that's Rabbi Akiva, the ultimate scholar warrior. And it's exactly that trait which he passed down to the greatest of all his students. And that student was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai because he was made of the same stuff. He also had a belligerent attitude towards the Roman occupation. Listen to this story in the Gemara. One time, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, they were sitting around and Rabbi Yehuda said, Look how great are the deeds of this Roman nation. I mean, look how they built up this country. You can't deny they built up the country. The marketplaces are all developed. They fixed all the bridges. And they got bathhouses that they fixed up. This place is rocking. Okay, that's what Rabbi Yehuda says. He's impressed by the Roman Empire's building up the country. Rav Yossi Shatak. Rav Yossi didn't say a word. And then Rabbi Shimin Bar Yochai said, everything the Romans did, they did for themselves. They built up the marketplaces so they can place prostitutes in them. They built bathhouses so they can pamper themselves. And they renovated and built their bridges so they can take tolls from us. Well, when Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's words were heard by the Roman authorities, they wanted Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai arrested. So he had to hide in a cave with his son. It's a whole story. They were in a cave for 12 years, living off carob trees. And according to the traditions, that's when he wrote the Zohar. Now, when you have a discussion like this in the Talmud, Rav Yehuda praises the Romans, Rav Yossi is quiet, and Rav Shimon Bar Yochai attacks the Romans. It's not just a discussion that's being recorded. We're talking about a gisha, an approach, a hashkafa, a worldview. Rav Yehuda comes to that worldview. Well, Hashem gave them the power. We don't want to provoke the nations. As it says, they're on top now. Let's keep a low profile. We don't want to provoke them. That's Rabbi Huda's approach. Rabbi Yossi Shatak. What does it mean he was quiet? Because he's afraid. He knows Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is right, but he doesn't want to get in trouble. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, in criticizing the Romans, is showing his approach, his belligerent approach to the Roman occupation. And if you go through the Talmud, you'll see many examples of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's unforgiving attitude towards Rome. So he's a scholar warrior in the mold of his rabbi, Rabbi Akiva. He has both sides to him, the Torah side and the nationalist side. And that's why Am Yisrael is attracted to him. They don't remember Rav Papa, who was scared of the Roman decrees. They don't remember Rabbi Yehuda ben Gera, who was kissing up to the Romans. Who do they remember? Who do they appreciate? They appreciate Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the scholar warrior. He's the one the masses are attracted to. And why does this your sight fall on the same day that the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva stopped dying? Because he represents their continuation. The continuation of those 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva who fell in the wars of Bar Kokhva. He's the continuation, the perpetuation of the scholar warrior. The one who has Torah in one hand and a sword in the other hand. And he represents the vitality of those 24,000 students who died. The continuation of that scholar warrior. And it will be those kind of leaders who will take us to the redemption. May it be speedily in our days. Moving on to something different, the news. This past Thursday morning, it was reported that the IDF eliminated the four Arabs who murdered Lucy D and her daughters. 
And, you know, for me, it's hard to get too excited about it because, you know, these four Arabs are part of an entire population of murderers. And you know that this population has in their hands, in their possession, thousands of weapons. And they're just waiting for the next Jew to murder. So we're supposed to get excited and prideful about the fact that after they murder us, then we get them. Sorry, but it's hard for me to get too psyched up about it. It's a little bit late. You're supposed to take care of the problem before they pull the trigger. Not after. That's why the Talmud says, if one comes to slay you, arise and slay him first. Arise. You don't wait till he kills you or at least neutralize him. And the Israeli government doesn't do that. They don't do anything to deter them or to make them not want to kill Jews. I mean, if they really wanted to stop it, how about raiding Shechem and collecting their stockpile of weapons? How about expelling and arresting the inciters? Or how about closing mosques? That's where all the incitement comes from. Just like they once closed down the yeshiva Od Yosef Chai in Yitzhar. And those guys never did anything. So for me, it's a little bit late. Actually, if we really wanted to stop all the Arab terror, we would do what the Torah says. And you know, it's funny, in the Daf Yomi, it actually mentions what we're supposed to do there. Daf Yomi, of course, is the daily regimen of learning Talmud. It's learned in uh, sequence every day, a page of Talmud. And it's kind of neat because Jews all over the world they're learning the same page each day. And the worldwide Daf Yomi is presently learning Tractate Sota. And just a few days ago, hundreds of thousands of Jews worldwide were on page 34 of Sota. And I want to read what it says in the Talmud in Tractate Sota. It says like this, When Joshua entered the land of Israel, he and the Jewish people experienced a miracle very similar to what the Jews experienced back in the days of Moses. We know that when the Jews left Egypt in the days of Moses, we had the parting of the Red Sea. Kriyat Yamsuf, the sea split and the Jews walked right through. Now in Joshua's time, there was also a great miracle. The Jordan River split and the children of Israel crossed on dry land into the land of Israel. Very similar to what happened in Kriyat Yamsuf. Now the Jordan didn't exactly split. It just kind of stopped. That is the Jordan River. It's not like the Red Sea. You have all these other bodies of water that flow into the Jordan. So what happened is that when the Jordan stopped, all the rivers that flow into it started to come down from above and the Jordan River rose in one big heap. So imagine the Jordan River splits for the Jewish people, the Jews cross, and the waters are getting higher and higher. And it's kind of scary. It's actually much scarier than Yamsuf, than the Red Sea miracle, because the Red Sea just split. But here you have this huge wall of accumulating waters as they're crossing the dry land of the Jordan. So again, the Jews are faced with this scary scene, water rising to such heights. And the Talmud asks, how high was the water? Rabbi Yehuda says it was 12 kilometers by 12 kilometers high. That is, it wasn't just high, it had width to it. And that corresponded to the camp of Israel, 12 by 12 kilometers. Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon said, the water was piled up layer after layer, more than 300 kilometers until all the kings of the East and West saw it. So either way, it's very high, okay? So the Talmud says that while they were crossing, Joshua stops them. And he says, halt, wait right here. And he says like this in Tractate Sota, page 34, Know why you are crossing the Jordan. That is, why are you entering the land of Israel now? Why are you crossing the Jordan? I want you to know why. Okay, so what's so important that he couldn't wait until they crossed the Jordan River, far from the danger of being swept away by a tsunami? What was so crucial that the people had to stop and be warned of? 
Maybe Joshua wants to remind them that they should study a lot of Torah when they enter the land of Israel. Maybe he wants to tell them about Shabbos. You got to observe Shabbos when you cross the Jordan. It's important. Maybe he wants to tell them about Sneus and eating kosher. No, this is what the Talmud in Sota says. Do amanat atem of then. No way you are crossing the Jordan. Why? In order to banish the nations from before you, as it says in the book of Numbers, and you shall drive out the inhabitants of the land. And the Talmud continues, if you do so, that's great. That is, if you drive them out, that's well and good. But if you don't, let these waters just come and flood both me and you. That is, the water was piled so wide and high, it was exactly the dimensions of the Jewish camp, and it threatened to flood them. And Joshua says, if you don't throw out the inhabitants, we might as well get swept away right now by a tsunami. So why is that? Why, out of all the possible mitzvot, why did Joshua choose this one, the mitzvah to drive out the inhabitants of the land? Because he knew that if you don't, then there won't be Torah study, and there won't be Shabbos, and there won't be kosher food, because we won't have the tranquility and the peace needed to build our state and society. The inhabitants of the land will be thorns in our eyes, as the Torah says. So Joshua is telling them that if you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land, then there's really no point in crossing the Jordan and going into Israel. If you're not going to do what the Torah says, and dispossess the inhabitants of the land, don't even bother going in. So I hope that when all of the world was looking at this page in Daf Yomi, Sota 34, they were paying attention to all this, but I doubt it. But the point is that if we have problems in Israel today with the Arabs, it's not because we speak Lashon Ra and we're not modest enough and we're not learning enough Torah. That's what most rabbis say today, that it's our sins that bring the Arabs upon us. Yeah, it is our sins. The sin of not driving out the Arabs from the land, because that's also a mitzvah, just like Shabbos, just like learning Torah. And I want to give a parable that Rabbi Benjamin Kahana used to give to show the absurdity of attributing Arab terror to the fact that we aren't doing enough chesed or not learning enough Torah. Let's say a group of religious Jews, they're on a tiul, they went on a tiul on some long hike and they forgot to bring water and they're walking long distances and they're getting really thirsty and they're trying to understand why is this happening to us? What has brought this upon us? Maybe somebody spoke Lashon Hara on the way. There was gossip on the way. Maybe we didn't do enough chesed and they start doing all this cheshbonefesh, all this soul searching. Why has this suffering come upon us? And it doesn't dawn on anybody that they're suffering because they didn't bring water. They forgot about the mitzvah of bringing water to the tiul. So if we have trouble with Yishmaelites in Israel, it's because we don't fulfill the mitzvah of driving them out. But most modern Jews, even religious Jews, they just don't see it. When these terrorists, these Arabs, who killed the family of Leo D, when they were eliminated by the IDF, the media asked Leo D what he thinks about it. And the media loves to parade Leo D around because he's saying all the things that they want to be broadcasted, all the niceties. So what did he say when the terrorists who killed his family were killed by the IDF? He said like this, if the terrorists were caught alive, I would want to ask them, why did you do it? What's your vision for a better world? He said, I asked the Shin Bet to ask their families this question for me. That's the reaction of a Jew who upon hearing that the Arabs who killed his family were killed, that is his reaction to this. You know, forget about the Torah, forget about halacha, leaving Torah out of it. 
Is that a normal thing to say? Jews from the West, they'll just never figure out the Arab mentality. I want to bring what Rabbi Meir Kahana said way back, back in 1985, before the Antifada began, what he said about Jews not understanding the Arab mentality. He explains here that most of his constituency are Sephardi Jews, because Sephardi Jews come from Arab countries, so they know what the Arabs are. The Ashkenazi Jews, maybe they know what Nazis are, but they don't have the Arab mentality. And we're going to hear now how the rabbi, he saw and he warns of the danger of the Arab time bomb inside Israel. He brings history. He brings normalcy and logic. He talks about the Arab mentality, something that unfortunately people in England or Efrat or America don't understand. The rabbi here will try to make Jews from the West understand what really is the Arab vision for a better world. That is what Rabbi Leo D wants to know. What's the Arab vision for a better world? A lot of dead Jews and the elimination of Israel. That's their vision. So let's listen to what Rabbi Kahana has to say to the Jewish community in 1985. Let's see how he tries to knock some sense into the American Jew. We are going to face a bloodbath. And if you want to know what the Arabs will do to us, if ever they get the opportunity, then just see what they do to themselves in Lebanon and know how much more it would be for us. And if you want to know what the Arabs will do to us, look what they did to us before there was a Kahana, before there was a Jewish state, what they did to us in the 1920s and 1930s. The average sovereign in Israel, not only doesn't he know anything about Judaism, he doesn't know anything about anything. You know how many hundreds of Jews were massacred in cold blood? Do you know of the massacres beginning in 1920 in Jaffa, in Jerusalem, Hebron, Sfat? Do you know that between 1936 and 1938, 510 Jews were massacred in cold blood by Arabs? What did the Arabs want from us then? Why were they killing us, us then? What was bothering the Arabs in 1920 and 1930? If you ask the Peace Now people, they will tell you why it's obvious. The occupied lands of 1967. Of course. When I think of that, they murdered Jews. They raped Jewish women. They, they burned dunam after dunam of Jewish fields, orchards. That's what they would do to us again. Of course, the issue in Israel has nothing to do with compromise. Nothing to do with giving up Judea and Samaria or Gaza. That's not the problem. Because when they had all of these lands, they were killing Jews. The issue is the existence of Israel, period. That's the problem. The existence of a Jewish state. What bothers Arabs is Jews. The fact that we exist there, that bothers them. So don't fall in, in, into this terrible trap of the Jewish liberal and the Jewish left and who walks around with a mantle of ethics. They're not ethical people. They're murderers. Every Jew who, is, who has been murdered in the state of Israel because Jews said, well, we can't throw the Arabs out. Every one of those Jews that was murdered, the blood of that Jew is on the heads of every other Jew who said, we can't throw the Arabs out. We had mercy on the cruel. We were cruel onto innocent people. Not for nothing does my support in Israel come from Sephardic Jews. Not for nothing. They are the last of the sane Jews. They're untouched by college professors. They're normal people. They lived under Arabs. They know what Arabs are. They don't learn about Arabs in some seminar. They know what Arabs are. They lived under them and they never again want to live under them again. Never. Of course they understand the Arab mind. And American Jew sits and says, well, why can't we come to an understanding? Because an American thinks that you can come to an understanding with everybody. We've forgotten that there is a thing known as good 
and that's evil. And you always hate evil, and you never forgive evil, ever. Moshe Aaron once put it well. He spoke to an American Jewish group which said, well, why can't we reach an understanding like compromise? He said, listen, this is the Middle East, not the Middle West. So the Sephardic Jew knows that because he comes from the Middle East. He lived with them. He knows them. And he knows the great lesson that they understand one thing only, and that is strength. That's what they understand. Strength. That was Rabbi Kahana again trying to knock some sense into the Jews of America. That's it for me. If you want to hear more of me, I have a Bible podcast, Lenny Goldberg's Bible Podcasts, for an authentic learning experience on the Bible. You can also email me if you have any questions or comments, LennyGoldberg40 at gmail.com, LennyGoldberg40 at gmail.com, Lenny with two ends, of course, and God willing, I'll be back next week.